I'm excited to continue through the book of Galatians. Right? So if you remember, uh, last week, um, we learned that the Galatians did not need to be circumcised. I mean, Paul just continued to relentlessly pound home the truth that we are justified by faith alone and in Christ alone. That circumcision is no longer the mark of those who belong to God. It's that you're indwelt with the Holy Spirit. That was the, the main thrust of everything that he was getting at last week, that we were, were saved and justified by faith alone, that we have a righteousness that's foreign to us. We have the, the righteousness of Christ, okay? And so that's what he was getting at last week, and he's going to continue to do that. And he does that by, by going through redemptive history, right? And, and he continues to do that. So in our, think about our own history. Think about our culture for a moment, right? In our our culture, we really, many people don't care about the past, right? It's just not a thing that they care about. It's all progress right now. So, so we don't really care about the past. We just want progress. That's our main concern as a culture. Um, so that means that it's open season on, on all that is, whether it's truth, whether it's history, and it's all for the sake of progress, right? So, so laws can be changed on a whim if we don't like them. And to be fair, there's times where laws should be changed. Like, for instance, I, I, I started to look up some laws. And um, so any Bigfoot hunters here? No. Good. Um, but if there were, I would want you to beware, right? Because in, there's a county in the, in the state of Washington, this is real, that in 1969 deemed that the slaying of Bigfoot to be a felony, punishable by law, up to five years in prison. And now... That was later amended, so don't worry, uh, because they, they designated Bigfoot as an endangered species. That's real. <laughs> that, that's real stupid, but it's real. All right, so maybe that one didn't work, right? So let's play a little game. So in West Virginia, what must a child's breath not smell like in school? Any guesses? Alcohol, garlic. No, but garlic was close. It's onions. That's a real law. How about Lexington, Kentucky, right? It's illegal to carry what in your pocket? Gun? Huh? A, a comb? No. An ice cream cone. Just in case you're wondering. This is legit. It's real. You can look it up. How about this? In Ohio, I did this one for you guys. I, I was like, I got to find something in Ohio, right? Um, it's illegal, now listen, Pastor Dave, it's illegal to sell what while, it's illegal to sell beer while wearing what? And you might want to know this, because, what? Hula skirt? That was awesome. <laughs> that was awesome. It should be, yeah. A Santa outfit. Just throwing that out. So, um. You know, so you, Dave, Jess, you guys are going to need to rethink your whole funding, you know, the, the church and, and uh, maybe an elf, you know, I, maybe, maybe like uh, Rudolph or something, you know. Yes. All right. My girl. Yeah, absolutely. I love it. So, so these are some fun examples of, of where it probably makes sense to change laws. I think we could agree. However... Attempting to change laws that no longer serve a purpose is, is actually way different than attempting to rewrite history, right? 
Um, there are some who attempt to rewrite history in order to serve their own agendas, okay? And, and as we've seen, we've seen this in our own lifetime, and it, it has real consequences, right? So therefore, it's important that we know our history. And if that's true of, uh, let's say, American history, it's certainly true of redemptive history. Well, that's why Paul continues to explain salvation history, and, and he's going to explain the role of the law today. And it's going to be real important. I think if you get this, you may already have it. And if so, that's great. I pray the Lord bless you. But some people really struggle with the law and with the gospel. And what does this thing look like? So this could be very helpful uh, in your everyday life and how you interact with your relationships, uh, husband and wife, with children, with people in your community. This has real life impact, right? So Really, what, what he's getting at, since the law came some 400 years after the promise to Abraham, 430 years later, um, essentially the Judaizers are saying, hasn't that replaced the promise? Hasn't that changed it? I mean, hasn't it at least been added to the promise, right? So it's the promise and. And that's the whole point that they're getting at. And, and they're saying, so if the law can't save us, then what's the point, Paul? And he's going to answer that question. He's going to make sure that the church in Galatia or the churches in Galatia understand. So let's jump into it. Galatians 3, 15 to 18. It's going to be our first section we look at. So let me read it once again. Um, and, and I want you to notice that the law of Moses does not do away with the promise of Abraham. Right? That's, that's the point of this text. So to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to his offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. Okay, pay attention. The law, which came 430 years afterwards, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Right? So you, can, you can see how he's correcting their thinking. Notice the, the change in tone, by the way. He says brothers. Right? It's much different than last week. Right? Last week, I mean, that's a friendlier tone than, oh, foolish Galatians, which was last week. Oh, I'm sitting up straight now. He says, but brothers, listen. Listen, right? And so he, he's, he's attempting to correct their thinking because what they believe will have eternal consequences. And he said that, he said that over and over in chapter 1, chapter 2, and he continues now. He, he knows that some might see the Mosaic Law, um, which came 430 years afterwards, as essentially God's promise to salvation and start to conclude that God changed it, that he added to it. And, and so, ha! Huh, got you. If he added this 430 years later, the game has changed, right? That's essentially what the Judaizers are saying. And, and if we are to get the blessing of Abraham, yeah, it's a promise and. And, and that's been the, the theme through chapter one, chapter two, that we must now obey the law. And Paul, he's not going to have it. He says, so to begin with, notice what he does. He starts with an illustration from everyday life, right? To do this, Paul takes a human covenant, right? Um, you could say it's like a legal will, uh, and in many ways it is, okay? We'll, we'll work with that. But it's, but it's stronger than that. It's, it's much stronger than that. So he reasons like this. He says, human covenants 
um, are difficult or even impossible to change once they've been ratified, right? And, and if that's the case, and, and it is, then if we consider a human will to be binding, no matter what happens once it's established, and in their cultural context, that would have been absolute, yeah, we get that for sure, then we have to agree that if God made the promise, he cannot go back on it. If humans don't do it, God absolutely will not do it, right? And so can you see his argument that, that he's making here? He's arguing from the, the lesser to the greater, okay, to get them to see that God cannot break his covenant. He cannot break his promise. If he does, he ceases to be God, and he's, he's God, right? And so if that's the case, and it is, that the law does not, cannot do away with or change the promise, you see that in verse 17, the law of Moses then cannot change that promise from anything other than what it was, which was a promise from a a holy, righteous, perfect God to an imperfect people. Abraham received it by faith. He was justified by faith, not by the things he did, because that came way after, right? The law came 430 years later. It's always been about a promise. It's always going to be about a promise. We are a people of a promise, not a performance. If you want to say we're about performance, we're about Jesus' performance in our place. We're about his performance, his life, his death right? That's what we put our trust in. That's what we stake our lives on. Paul is going back to Genesis 12 once again. Notice, though, he uses some interesting language. He says, now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. Notice that. He says, it doesn't say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but he says, referring to one, and to your offspring. He says, who is Christ? This is who he's referring to. This text connects the promise of Abraham but it, but it actually goes way back even further, right? Um, the true and only offspring of Abraham is ultimately Jesus. Everyone else failed. Abraham failed. Moses failed. The prophets failed. Only Christ was perfect and is perfect. And so in order to get that connection, he goes back, even before Abraham, he goes back to the garden. He goes back to Genesis chapter 3. That, that, that word offspring is what makes the connection, right? Um, Genesis 3 is one of the most important chapters in all the Bible, because what it does is it explains what the problem is, and, and, and thankfully, God does not make us wait. He tells us the solution that he has to the problem, okay? And so let's look at just one verse from Genesis. You can just listen as I read, and you can, you can look it up, but let me give you a little narrative up to that point. So, and many of you know it, but I also know some of you are just now, let's say, coming to faith, and you don't have any clue right? So God in his kindness, he creates, right? He's, he's a good God. Well, he, he creates uh, Adam out of the dust, right? And, and he gives him dominion. He walks with God and, and it's good. All things are good. There is no sin in the world. You and I cannot even imagine that. Even on our best day, it's still tainted and infected with sin, right? That was not the case at one point. So Adam walked with God. He, he loved all these things. He got to work with his hands the only time God said it was not good before the fall was the fact that, that Adam did not have a helper that was fit for him. Everyone, every, all the other beasts of the field did. There was male and there was female, and they enjoyed. But Adam had no one like him because Adam was the only thing in all creation that was made in God's image. So God, in his kindness, you know, gives him a little nap, takes a rib, fashions wife, and whoa, there's a woman. And, and right? And her name's Eve. Which, which, by the way, is, it's mine. 
mine, right? And so that's the first marriage between a man, between a woman. The, the two became one flesh. And, and God is not some cruel taskmaster. He said, listen, I want you to enjoy one another. I, I want you to enjoy all of creation, but do not eat from this tree of knowledge of good and evil because the day you do, you shall surely die, right? And so if you're familiar with that story, you know what happens. And, and so Eve, she's talking to a snake. Never a good idea, by the way. Snake starts talking to you. Just run. You know, it's never good. And what does he do? He starts to question the word of God. Did God really say? And before you know it, she takes the fruit. She eats. She gives some to her husband who is with her. He eats. That's the fall. Immediately then they go and hide. And, and, and they're, you know, you know it's, not, it's not good to play hide and go, it's good to seek with like God. Right? He knows where you're at. But they're ashamed. So they're covering up. They're hiding. And he calls them out. And in his kindness, he has a solution for the problem. I want you to know the cross has always been God's plan A. He wasn't surprised. He wasn't surprised. He had a plan. And, and in Genesis 3.15, listen to what he says. He says, I will put enmity or hostility between you, serpent, and the woman. And between your offspring and her offspring. Notice the word. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. By the way, this is what some really pointy-headed people call the Proto-Evangelion, right? Don't think, I'm really smart. I just know how to read people who are, which means first gospel. Notice the first gospel is preached by God. He's a God of promise. This means that, that God preached to Adam and to Eve and promised the coming of Jesus, right? And, and I love this because Jesus is the head crusher here, right? He's going to be wounded by Satan, right? You're going to bruise his heel. You're going to inflict a wound on him, Satan. But I want you to know that wound will not destroy my Holy One. What he will do is he will triumphantly resurrect from the grave and he will crush your head in doing so. That's essentially what he's saying, right? And, and so this stunning account in Genesis comes, right, shows itself once again in Genesis 12 because he says, I'm going to build numerous, numerous people, more than the stars through you, Abraham and Sarah. But he, he says one offspring. Just look at verse 18 again. He says, for if the inheritance comes by the law, it's no longer by a promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why? Because he's fulfilling the promise that he said in, in, in Genesis 3. You see it? The, the point is that the law and the promise are fundamentally, you know, opposed to each other in what it comes to what they do. Okay? So the, the law of Moses had been intended, if it had been intended to save us, it failed. Big time. But that was never its function. Right? If, if that's the case, then, then Paul says, then salvation no longer comes by promise. So, so don't think of the law as a ladder to clean yourself up. This is what many people think of when they think of the law. God would have to change his mind and he would have to change history to do that. And to do that, he would himself have to change. But God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He does not change. In a world where everything changes, it's so good to know that we worship a God that does not change. And, and so, Paul keeps driving home the point that salvation comes either by grace or it comes by works. It's, it's one or the other, right? It's, it's either God's promise or your performance. It's either one. It cannot be both. And so he continues. But then the question comes to mind, and you might have been thinking it long before today, then what's the point of the law? 
right? Um, imagine the, the, the church or the churches at that time as they're, they're reading or hearing this letter read. They have to be wondering, then what do we do with the law? Why did it exist? Why did God have it come to be? Because the law is good. What do we do with it now, Paul? So he doesn't leave them guessing. He says, right? So we're going to pick it back up in verse 19 through 25. But, but notice, listen, the law of God is not, it does not contradict the promise. It doesn't. He's going to say that explicitly. They work together in the gospel. They just have different functions. So listen up. He says, why then the law? Great question. It was added because of transgressions. Until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if the law had been given that could give life, notice that phrase, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So, the typical Jewish view of the Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible, that, that's the law, was, was they believed it was an agent for moral transformation. They really did. I mean, over and over, um, you can see that cited. Well, I would say even today in most secular realms, um, many even religious people believe the same thing. They believe that morality can be imposed by do's and don'ts, right? And Okay, maybe at some level it restrains, for sure. But they actually believe that education is the pathway to real flourishing, right? We just need more rules. We just need more do's, more don'ts. If we could do that, boy, the world would be amazing. We would actually see real change. And people believe this, right? By the way, this, this kind of teaching actually can creep its way into many children's books, um, Christian children books. Um, most Christian children books are a lot of morality, a lot of law. Uh, I remember uh, pastoring in Indiana. We had uh, a few people that thought it'd be helpful to go and buy all the really crappy Christian books for children at like some yard sale and bring them to the church because they smelled and they had bubble gum on them. And so I'm looking at them, but most of them were garbage, not because of the bubble gum, because of what they taught. So I threw them all out and that did not make some people happy. But, but why it's important is because fundamentally it's important to teach children, just like us, the good news that Jesus died for sinners. That's why, like uh, the Jesus Storybook Bible, right, that's an excellent resource. Um, as our church continues to grow, by God's grace, we're going to be very active in working towards making sure that we teach the same big God to your children as what you get through the word here. But we don't want to dumb it down. We do want to make sure that they're understanding it. So we want to teach it in a way that's very engaging for a child and for that age. But we are going to teach the gospel, not some morality. And I will tell you that a lot of children's curriculum, that's not the case. Uh, one in particular, which I won't say, but because you'll just never have to deal with it here, was terrible, and many churches use it. But all it is is about just being a good friend. 
It's just about being, it's the orange program, in case anyone's wondering. And I, I knew some people were like, I couldn't help myself. It's garbage. It's garbage. And it's taught at so many churches. There might be some good things in it, but they're not teaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so you got a bunch of well-behaved kids, but that does not mean they're born again. I mean, I hope you realize that a well-behaved kid in a, in a church gathering doesn't mean they're saved. And, and a child who misbehaves in a church gathering doesn't mean they're not, right? Like, so, so we have to quit thinking like that. We have to quit thinking like that. You could, you could have some kids just wiling out all the time, and they might really love the Lord, dwelt by the Holy Spirit, very immature. You could even have some teens like that. You could have young adults like that. You can have old adults like that. But you can have someone who always does everything just so wonderful, prim and proper, and is lost. Because morality is not. It doesn't mean that morality doesn't matter. It's just you can have people want to be good for all sorts of different reasons other than loving God. And that's the point, right? So the world wrongly thinks that if we just somehow do better at teaching morals, then truth and justice will prevail. But Paul, and heck, I'd say the Bible and our reality would say that law and the view of law and and the goodness of humanity is is much less optimistic, (laughs) much less optimistic, right? We make a huge mistake when we think that the law can correct bad behavior from the heart. It can't, right? In fact, the law alone actually only stirs up such bad behavior. People get worse, not better. You're like, I don't know if I believe that. When you lay down the law, that's for sure true. And that's the crazy thing about legalism, by the way, right? It doesn't make people work harder. It makes them give up. It makes them give up because I can't do it, right? It, it, it makes them give up and, and even while out. This is why, by the way, we shouldn't be surprised that the straight-laced um, leave-it-to-beaver people, right, of, of the 50s and of the 40s, like that's who they were, came right before the free love hippie movement of the 60s. I mean, why didn't they produce what they were? Well, because it doesn't work like that. It isn't to say that, this, that the law and, and the gospel aren't both good for our lives, but you've got to understand the function of them, right? So let's, let's look at that. They do very different things. Notice what he says. So what does the law achieve? Good question. Verse 19. It was added because of transgressions until Jesus came. Which means that the law did not come to tell us about how to get saved, but about sin. And the holiness of God. It shows his perfection, and it shows how, how far short we fall. Right? And, and so it, it shows us that we're the problem. And that the law is not the solution, right? The problem is us, that you and I are lawbreakers. Therefore, we can't be the solution if we're the problem. There's a promised one coming, right? And, and so the law is diagnostic in nature. It shows us the reality of God's goodness and our sinfulness. So like, think about a PET scan, right? Not for the ones with fur, but like you're going to get checked out for cancer, right? Um, It can tell you that you have certain kinds of cancer. It can tell you that you have heart disease. It can tell you that you you might have some brain disorder. But what it cannot do is heal you. It can only show you you're sick. You need solution. You need healed. That's the same way that the, that the, the law works with us in a sense, right? And so try this. 
If, if that doesn't make sense, growing up, Sarah, sorry, buddy. This is just how it works sometimes as a preacher, right? Yeah, it's going to be good. You'll love it. So growing up, sweet Sarah, my lovely daughter, her grandparents would say, she's perfect. She's just perfect. They'd just pinch her cheeks, and, and I'd be like, yeah, be sure, by the way, she's awesome. I love my daughter. Perfect? Mm, no. No. Not perfect, Right? In the back of my mind, I'm thinking, well, eh, eh, probably not. But grandparents, they're like that. They get that, right? But all children have a rebellious side to them. They don't become bad. They're born sinners by nature. You and I were born sinners by nature, right? And, and so, just to prove the point, if I were to say to Sarah when she was a young girl, hey, honey, here, take this plate of cookies and go on the couch and watch SpongeBob until your little heart's content, she'd be like, Thanks, Dad. And she would go, and everybody would say, look how obedient she is. But if I were to say to that same lovely girl, hey, uh, turn off the television, put the cookies down. You and I, we're going to go out in the yard, and we're going to have some fun. We're going to pick up all the dog droppings from winter. What do you think? She's going to be like, okay, Dad, I'd love to. No. She's going to be like, mm, no, no, not doing that, Dad. You can do that, Dad, right? And, and you think, oh, she's terrible. No, she's, oh, she's human. This is what it means to be human. I would ask her to do And you're like, well, who wants to pick up dog droppings? It could have been something simple. Sweetie, go ahead, turn the TV off. Go brush your teeth. Get ready for bed. No, not yet, Dad, right? So we love to rebel. And, and you might be thinking, well, what does that, what does that prove? Well, the same way, when, when the law comes into us, we, we rebel against it because it exposes our sinful heart in each and every one of us. We obey the things we want to obey, and we might even obey things we don't want to obey because we're afraid or because it actually gives us a reward, right? So every one of us break the law. How many people were speeding this week, right? Hands up, exactly, right? <laughs> oh, you were really guilty. <laughs> that hit you. But, but we then, we do some silly things and we say, no. Well, okay, I speed, but at least and then we always go for it. Maybe this generation doesn't. But at least I'm not Hitler. As if like somehow killing millions of people is the standard. <laughs> well, whoa, you don't kill millions of people. You're awesome. No, we're we're guilty. But not only, listen, not only does the law expose our sin, listen, it was also given to increase or intensify our sin. Strange when you hear it at first, right? It's like, huh? But Galatians 3.19 says that the law was given because of transgression. Or a better translation might be this, and this is from one of the commentaries. A better translation would say that the law was added to produce transgressions. And you can't be like, oh, wait, that that doesn't make sense at all. Well, you can see it very clearly in Romans 5.20. Listen to what it says. Now the law came in to increase transgressions. Okay, that's pretty clear. Thanks, Paul. That was certainly clear. And that might be very hard to wrap your mind around when you first hear it because we don't, we don't think like that, right? Like you, you tell a child, but, but I want to show you an illustration. You tell a child not to get cookies before dinner. And they're like, okay, you're not allowed to eat a cookie before Thanksgiving dinner. But there's like cookies everywhere. And all they want is a cookie, right? Okay, now if they get a cookie and eat it, they broke the law. But now you say, seriously, I see you looking at it. I don't even want you to look at cookies. Oh, can't have one. I can't look at one. 
I, I don't even want you to think about cookies. Oh my goodness. I, I don't want you to desire cookies. And all they're thinking about is, I just want a cookie. And they're breaking all sorts of laws now. Tons of laws. So, so it increased it. It magnified it. It just showed you, man, not only do I, all I want is a cookie. And they become the cookie monster now. Right? Why? Because the law, it, it, it increased what they already wanted. It showed them. It multiplied transgression. It multiplied sin in them. Now to be clear, once again though, there's not, the law of God is good. It's good, right? Romans 7.12 says this, so the law is holy, right? It, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. But when we start to think the law is the means of salvation, you get all whack. You get messed up. You end up with very religious, legalistic churches. We need to understand that the law is primarily what it's for, right? But first, notice what he says it's not for. Look at verse 21. It, what, notice what it can't do. It cannot give life. See that? It does not give life. It points to righteousness, but it can't produce it. Right? It shows us what godliness is, but it can't make us godly. The law, apart from the gospel, it, it can certainly crush us, but it cannot cure us. Right? You see that? It can't produce life. And so, a great analogy um, was given, and I, don't, I couldn't find who was actually responsible for this quote. Some say it was Spurgeon, some don't know. It doesn't matter. But listen to what they say about the law. They said, the law is like a cage. If it has bars, it can keep a lion from eating a lamb. But it cannot prevent the lion from wanting to eat the lamb. You see that? So the law can restrain, it just can't change the heart. Do you get it? Right? Like many places have long workbooks or handbooks that tell you do's and don'ts of working for a company, right? When I worked for Radio Shack, they had tons of them. But, but here's the thing. Rules and regulations aren't necessarily bad, but Paul in the Bible reminds us that they don't change the heart, right? So human beings might be good law-abiding as citizens, but it's not because they're just sweetie pies at the core of who they are. It's because they are thinking that the law, the punishment, outweighs what I'm going to get. Or if they think, no, that's not the case, it's worth it. I'm going to take the chance. Do You see, so it's always motivated differently, but it doesn't change the desire of the heart, Right? Only the, the Holy Spirit of God can transform the heart of a believer. Right? When we believe, when we put our faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, we receive a helper. We receive the presence of God. And He gives us a new heart. He takes out our old stony heart and He gives us a new one that loves Him, that's tender towards Him, that has a conscience towards Him, that desires to obey Him, not to get love, but because its understanding is, I am loved. Right? Galatians 2.20. What is it, Eli? Go ahead. Yeah. Who loved me and gave himself for me. When? When you were a law-breaking sinner. He loves you while you're ungodly. And that love that we see in the gospel produces a love for God. Gives us the desire, but he gives us real power because he gives us himself. So then, 
to, to, to boil it down, what's the point of the law? Paul is saying essentially that the law served as a taskmaster until Christ came. In, in other words, that the law functioned to drive us to Jesus, right? It, to show us our need for a Savior, just like a PET scan shows you your need for some kind of medical treatment, the law shows you you are a sinner. You do not measure up. You cannot measure up. Christ has measured up. Trust him. Run to him. Receive him. But the problem, you can't even run to him. Thank God Jesus comes to us. Jesus came to seek and save the lost, right? You weren't wandering around saying, boy, I just, I just wish I knew Jesus. Jesus came for you. Right? And if you had any inclination or draw towards him, it's because he was working in your life long before you knew it because spiritually dead people want nothing to do with God. And yet he comes. He comes. So the law shows us who we really are. And the law points us to see Jesus as who he really is. Our Savior. The one who obeyed the law perfectly in our place. Who died the death you and I deserve to die so that we might receive life and the promised blessing of the Holy Spirit. This is good news. I mean, once again, we see that the only way to come to God is through Christ alone, right? Nobody comes to the Father except through Jesus. He is the way, the truth, the life. You do not get to God around Him, over Him, under Him. You must go through Him, and that through Him is by faith. Abraham needed Jesus. Abraham needed Jesus. Moses needed Jesus. David needed Jesus. You and I and every person from the Old Testament, New Testament, and everybody walking around now who has faith in Jesus, we need Jesus. We're born sinners. We're, we're sinners by our action, our thought, our deed. We need a new nature. And, and this is exactly where Paul is going to go in the book of Galatians. You might even be thinking like, man, this is like the same sermon, I think. I mean, he's saying different things, and we got to hear about Sarah and cookies. But what do we get to do? When do we do something? Well, I want you to know Paul is going to go there, but he does not want to go there too quickly because he wants to under, you to understand you are a people of promise. It is believing, not doing. Believing is doing, actually. It is doing. It's, it's faith. God doesn't need anything, but what is he looking for? He's looking for faith. He's looking for people to trust him. When? Always. Remember we talked about it's not the, the, the quality necessarily of, of your faith. You don't have to have amazing faith. You might have very weak and feeble faith, but you have an amazing God, and that's sufficient. And so many times we say, oh, God, like I believe, but help my unbelief, right? I'm struggling. I'm weak. Well, thankfully, as Kevin keeps reminding us, as the Bible tells us over and over, he does not put out a smoldering wick. We have a God who is gentle. He is lowly. So you have faith the size of a mustard seed. It's sufficient. But how does your faith grow? It's not by what you do. It's by looking at what Christ has done for you. It's the object of your faith. It's the object of your faith. So once again, we remind ourselves that this is not a moral improvement program. It's not what the gospel is. Now, that'll happen. Why? Because the Holy Spirit lives in you. So you're going to desire things for God. You're going to want to love the Lord. You're going to desire to love your neighbors. Those things happen, but it's not a clean yourself up program. 
It's believing in a promise. It's believing in a perfect and holy God. It's not about your rule keeping or your religious box checking off things. It's not about being nice or a little sweetie pie. No, it's all about Jesus and his life, his death, his resurrection. That's what Jesus came to do is to save people who could not obey the law. And Paul wants us to get it. And I pray we do. He came to fulfill a righteousness. He came to fulfill a righteousness and die a death that would remove all our sin. And now we have this perfect righteousness. He doesn't just pardon us for our sin. He gives us his perfect righteousness. Stunning. This is stunning to think about. You might have blown it in a thousand ways this week. But in the courtroom of heaven, if you're trusting in Christ, I want you to know you're as holy as Jesus Christ. And, and where he's going next week is, is not, not only are your sins forgiven, but you are my son. You are my daughter. I have brought you into my family. I am your God, and I'm your father in heaven, ruling and reigning and working all things to the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And what is that good? Is that Christ would be formed in you. That you'd be more like Christ and less like yourselves. That's where this whole thing's going. So, so in chapter 5, when we get there, he's going to talk about what does it mean to live by the Spirit, to walk by the Spirit, to be led by the Spirit, to be a Spirit-filled people, because that's way better, because the law is now written on your heart. And what's it all about? Love. It's going to all be about love. You'll know my disciples by how they love one another. How can we do that? We can't. The Holy Spirit in you can. And He does. And He will. And we do that not to get love, but because in the gospel, you're loved. This is the beauty of of the good news of Jesus. We, We need so much grace. So many times we think we need grace at the beginning of our salvation, but you need grace at every moment of your life. There's never a day in your entire life that you wake up and you're like, yeah, don't need that. Don't need grace. Killing it today. I'm a champ, right? You wake up every day in great need. In great need. And God meets all your needs. He meets every one of your needs. He's, he's, he's resolved your greatest problem. And if you're wondering, well, what was my greatest problem? I, I think it's because I can't pay bills or because this guy or girl doesn't like me or someone's mean to me. No, your, your greatest need was for righteousness because your greatest problem was you're under the wrath of God. You're under the wrath of God. And that's terrifying to think about. And Jesus said, Father, I will will receive the punishment they deserve. And he willingly went to the cross. And he substituted himself. And he took the punishment that we deserve. And he gave us a righteousness we could never earn. And he gave it as a gift. And so that grace is to receive by faith. But you don't ever move past that. You don't move past. I, I got grace to get in, but now if it's meant to be, it's up to me. I've got to keep the rules. What's the rules? 
love God, and love others. That's it. It's simple. And yet, because of our flesh, well, it's very complex. But Paul will get into that in Galatians 5. Until then, keep reminding yourself of the good news of Jesus Christ. There's not a day you don't need to be reminded that Jesus died to save sinners whom I once was. But now I'm a beloved child. I'm a new creation. What's he doing in you? He's forming Christ in you. That's what he's doing. This is where the whole thing's going. He wants a people for himself to be like him because we get to represent God here on earth as his people. We have been blessed by this great promise to be a blessing. To be a blessing. Not to get anything, but because we have everything. You inherit it all as God's children. That's where he's going next week. But understand the difference between the law and the gospel. They're not contrary, but they do totally different things. The law shows you the problem. The gospel answers and says this is the solution. Trust in Jesus. Continue to trust in Jesus. And when you are struggling to do that, he won't lose you. He'll continue to grip you and continue to give you everything you need to make it to the finish line. Why? Because this God keeps his promises. Will you join me in prayer? Father, we thank you. That you are a God of great promises. And all the promises in the Bible find yes in Christ. So it's amazing as we read the Bible to be reminded of all the promises that you've ever made to your children. And to know that they're, that they're ours because we're in Christ and he's in us. Father, I pray that we would be totally blown away by this good news that it would impact every thought and area of our lives not just on a Sunday morning or a Tuesday when we get together but in every way that we would understand how just kind and merciful you are how patient you are how full of steadfast love you are so that we might look more and more like you and less and less like ourselves. God, help us to do that. Holy Spirit, give us power to be a people who love. Who love. Lord, that we wouldn't be so consumed with ourselves that we would have time and bandwidth to think of the people that are in great need in the city. That They don't have their greatest need removed because they, they have not come to trust in you. So Lord, I pray you continue to put us in particular places and people's lives and put them in our lives so that we can not only share the good news of what Christ has done, but we can literally share ourselves and our lives with this city. I pray that you would be magnified in the great city of Greensburg. Lord, that, that your church, not for the city, but your church, those who love you and know you and have faith in you, would continue to grow. And so, Lord, I just pray that your, your fame would continue to increase here in Greensburg because of your people seeking to love the people that you put in our lives. Help us to do that, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.